All right, if you have not been with us uh, this semester, uh, we have been talking about sex uh, all semester long. Um, and not just specifically about sex, but dating and relationships um, and singleness and marriage uh, and a lot of different layers of things uh, that go around that because it's so prevalent for us uh, in our lives, uh, in our culture. Uh, we're surrounded by all kinds of different uh, messages when it comes to this um, in the world that we live in. Uh, so we're bombarded uh, by this all the time. And so the question that sits really heavy for us uh, as uh, disciples, and, and what's a disciple? Yeah, somebody just, who somebody follows, and in our case, uh, somebody who follows Christ, uh, walks in the way of Christ, um, to, to say it how we do, and <clears throat> which means that uh, what does it mean to, uh, to think about sex, to live in a world uh, of sex? What is, what is sex in our world as uh, disciples? So, so we've been uh, uh, going at this from a different uh, angle every week uh, this semester, and what we're going to talk about tonight is purity. Uh, so purity is a purity's been kind of actually a, a hot button uh, uh, word uh, in the world <clears throat> lately because uh, the purity culture, as it has existed uh, in popular Christianity for probably the last uh, two or three decades, especially, uh, has come under a lot of fire recently. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I don't know if you've noticed that or seen any of those uh, discussions or things that have come from that, uh, but some of it has been for good reasons. Uh, some of it, um, you know, it, it just, it ranges. Some, is, some has been really good. Some has been very shallow. Some has been really worth uh, thinking about <clears throat> when it comes to purity. Excuse me. Sorry. <clears throat> All right. If it's not the microphone, it's me. Um, and so what we want to do tonight is just take a fresh look at our concept of purity, um, and especially as we throw it around a lot. So I'm not going to ask you to show your hands, uh, but there are probably at least some of you who have been through some kind of sexual purity program as part of your church life growing up, um, if you had that. Um, that's it's pretty widespread. There's uh, there's a number of different programs that uh, churches have embraced over the years, um, <clears throat> and I can say that because I did. Um, I did. I was uh, in a youth group uh, as a teenager, and there's there's part of me part of me that's thankful for it, uh, and there's part of me that knows there's a whole lot more to it than where it generally leaves your typical eighth grader, right? Uh, so what we generally take away from our simplistic uh, discussions about purity is that it's a measure of whether you have what? Fill, fill in the blank. <laughs> Shamron. Sex. <laughs> Good answer. Right. <laughs> That's awkward. <clears throat> yeah. So no matter what the message is, it's going to be awkward if your parents are running uh, the program, right? Um, 
Yeah, so it's, it's it kind of, uh, I think for, for many people over uh, a long period of time, uh, from from the the approaches and the, dis the discussions that have taken place and things like this, uh, purity has, if you if you boil it down, has kind of become this measure of whether you have had uh, extramarital sex or not, right? Um, and so, it, as a result of that, we end up focused not on on not having. Uh, we become so focused on not having sex that for some people. And this, I've seen this. This is not an exaggeration. I've seen this. It's true. Uh, when you get married, sex actually is difficult um, uh, or strange or guilt-inducing. Um, and I've seen that. Um, I've seen that a number of times in uh, couples that I've counseled uh, through the years. Uh, the, the the approach to sex is actually kind of a frightening one uh, for some people, and I think that's been a side effect of uh, maybe how we have uh, hit uh, the idea of purity just from just a little um, off-centered. Uh, so don't get me wrong in that. I don't want you to hear me, uh, hear what I'm not saying in that, and that is we are still going to absolutely stand by what we talked about several weeks ago, <clears throat> if you were here, and that is sex is an intimate and beautiful incredible act for the marriage relationship. So we won't get back into that, but we're going to stand <clears throat> on that um, ethical ground when it comes uh, to how we think about sex itself. But tonight we're going to take a renewed look at purity and how God wants it to shape us no matter where you have been sexually, okay? Where we, where we can come at this tonight is true for all of us, no matter where you... Thank you. <clears throat> There's a servant. Mm. Ah. <laughs> right. So tonight, <clears throat> I've, I've cleared my throat so that you can hear this. Purity is not about what it is isn't okay it's about what it is <laughs> and corbin's goes huh <clears throat> purity is not about what it isn't it's about what it is so everything from here is to explain what i mean by that okay purity purity let's just think about the word purity Purity is the essence of something. If you have something, anything, in its most perfect essence, you have that as a pure <clears throat> thing or a pure expression of whatever that thing is. And for disciples, which, what are disciples? Followers of Christ, people who walk in the way of Christ. Purity is is the essence of who God created you to be. If we are seeking purity, if we are embracing purity, if we desire purity, we are going after the very essence of who God has created us to be. Now, we know we live in a broken world, and we have broken lives 
<clears throat> there are no unbroken lives in this room right now. So we know we end up far away from where God wants us to be. And all of us uh, in here are acutely aware of, of many very important ways that we know we have been or are even right now away from where God wants us to be. Okay, we know this, we sense this, and it's why we're convicted by the love and the ways of God, uh, because the ways of God are, are right and true and pure and beautiful, and we're convicted by that uh, in the reality of ourselves before the face of God. But what we end up being taught is that purity is a status, right? A measure of rightness or wrongness or godliness or sinfulness, right? It's some kind of state of being that you have that can be defined as a status. And when it's a status, it ends up teaching us that things like sex, for example, are bad or destructive because as we have we've been through in here we see how sex can be put in a bad and destructive place in our lives right it's it, it can be in a wonderful beautiful incredible uh, uh, building up place in our lives and in the right relationship in the right place <clears throat> but it can also be destructive to us it's a powerful force that has power to, that can go either way. But when we, uh, when we, when we put sex uh, in a kind of a purity status for us, uh, we, we tend to avoid it because it makes us dirty in the eyes of God, if that's how we define it. But, um, and this is how we end up linking things like sex with guilt, and why even some who successfully live by this experience guilt even in marriage, like we talked about. So when we make purity a status, we forego a deeply intimate relationship and substitute it with what actually is shallowness in us before God. So all that's to say, let's do away with right now the idea of purity as a status, as if are you pure or impure right now? Maybe there's some merit to that question on some levels, but I don't think it's helpful for us right now. And what I want to encourage you to replace it with is this. How are we moving more toward what God created me to be? Okay? So it's not where you stand right now. Our pursuit of purity is where we are working to go when it comes to being the creation that God intends for us, okay? I hope that makes sense for you. And so uh, to, to flesh that out a little bit, we're gonna talk about how we think about and how we value and pursue purity. Uh, and to do that, we're gonna, we're gonna use a really uh, powerful story from the Bible. Uh, and that is the story of a guy named David and a woman named Bathsheba. And I know some of you uh, know the story. Some of you may never, never heard those names in your life. Uh, so David is one of the, the central pillar characters of the Old Testament 
in the Bible and has been regarded uh, by the Jews, uh, especially as one of the most important historical figures um, in all of our whole story with God. <clears throat> so we read about David a lot in uh, the books of First and Second Samuel. And we get to this story in Second Samuel 11. I'm not going to read the whole story. It's pretty long. But I want you to hear it here. So in this story, David sends his armies off to war. And he stays in Jerusalem, uh, where his palace is. And so David, uh, in the midst of this, he gets up one evening and he walks around on the roof of this palace. And apparently this palace has quite uh, extraordinary views around the city because he sees a beautiful woman bathing on her roof. And being the king, he sends for her. She comes and they get it on. Okay, It's in the Bible. Uh, they get it on, she goes back home, and then, it, you know, in the, the proper amount of time later, she sends him a snap of her pregnancy test. Uh, and David's like, oh, fill in the blank. <laughs> so, David's like, I gotta, I've, I've got to do something about this. So David's a smart guy. He, he, he finds out that her husband is a guy named Uriah. Okay, Uriah is one of the, the soldiers out in the armies that David has sent off. Uh, and what he does is he sends for him to be, he sends for him to be called back uh, to Jerusalem from the battlefield. And he, he goes through this like really awkward conversation of like, so how are things going out there? Um, yeah, you need anything? Uh, you guys okay? Uh, how about you, um, since you're back here, how about you just go home for the night? Go to your home uh, where your wife lives, uh, and then you can head back to the battlefield after you're rested up for the night. Um, but what Uriah does is he sleeps at the palace entrance with the servants, okay? So David gets on to him for this. So why in the world didn't you go home, you know, where your wife is, uh, who's hot? Um, and Uriah, Uriah's like, why would I do that when all of my fellow soldiers are out on the battlefield? And David is like, I did not him expect him to have that kind of integrity. Uh, so here's what I'll do. I will get him drunk. Uh, and he does. Uriah is completely drunk. David's crossing his fingers. Come on, now go home and let's do it. Okay? Um, but Uriah still does not go home. So what David does, so from there Uriah goes back to the, to the battlefield. David devises a plan for Uriah to be sent to the front of the battle and for the forces with him to be drawn back, basically leaving him exposed and as a result, what? He'd be killed, right? Um, so now we have David, already an adulterer, and is now what? A murderer, right? <clears throat> so 
So the story continues, and uh, this guy, Nathan, who's basically David's spiritual advisor, local prophet, he comes to David and calls him to the carpet for what he's done. He tells him of the terrible consequences that are going to happen, and including the death of the child that, she, that he and Bathsheba um, had together. It's horrific. And I, I really re recommend that you read this because he does it by telling him in a story that puts him in the story that makes David furious at the person in the story. And then Nathan's like, well, that's who you are. Um, <clears throat> read it, please. So, so it's at this point that David is actually convicted. And he's struck with grief and remorse. And so it goes on, the story continues on there. Uh, there's all, lots of things that happen uh, because of all of this. But one of the things that takes place is that David writes the 51st Psalm in the book of Psalms. And in this, uh, the whole Psalm is about him dealing with his guilt and remorse over what has happened. But he has this line and for, for us, it's, it, it's, a, it's a really highly quoted line, but it comes from this circumstance. And he says to God, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Who's saying this? David is saying these words. David, an adulterer and a murderer. He's taken someone else's wife, ultimately as his own. He had illegitimate sex. He bore an illegitimate son. He covered up a horrendous scandal and had a, a good person brutally murdered by conspiracy to try to protect his own reputation. How can David talk about purity? If purity is a status, what is it for David? What is it? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, that's it, right? It's a big fat no. It's destroyed. It's gone. And yet he boldly stands before God and makes that ask. Forgiveness? Maybe. Grace of God? Perhaps. But purity? Isn't that dead? Let's read some of the, some of the lines around that in... in Psalm 51, starting verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit 
to sustain me. So the question we have to ask is, do we believe that God can do what David is asking? Do we believe that? That's the question for you to sit with. Can God do this for someone like David? Does David have a right to ask for such a thing? That's a bold ask, right? Given what he's done and where he's been. But I want this to emphasize for us. What is David ultimately called? What's, it, what's kind of, for those of you who know, what's kind of his legacy? What is it? Say it louder. A man after God's own heart. Does everything you just heard in this story sound like someone who has God's own heart? I don't know. It's doubtful. That's doubtful. But yet, that's his legacy, right? Because we can say confidently that purity is a pursuit and not a status that we carry. So let's talk about how we foster a, a life and a heart of purity. <clears throat> Tell me, what would happen if you only ate junk food for a year? Let's imagine for a second. You're like, ah, you'd look like me. What would happen if we ate junk food for a year? What? <laughs> Are we just confused about what would happen if we ate junk? What? What would happen? What would be results? Oh, yeah, here we go. We get the medical explanation. Would in increase our chances of heart disease to 100%, right, in three months. Um, who's seen Supersize Me? Right, a lot of you have. What happened, to, what happened to Morgan Spurlock in one month of doing nothing but eating McDonald's? Yeah, I mean, it was insane what, what happened in his body, right? But we live in a world where our minds are being constantly fed by junk. And we know this. We've talked about this, right? And it has a way of shaping and twisting our hearts. And even if we believe we're okay on the outside. Matthew 5 uh, is part of the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. And it has this line in it that's part of a, a, a long uh, a long discourse on these kinds of things. And he says, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. And all these guys in the crowd there on the hill who were so proud of themselves and confident because they had never cheated on their wives were suddenly adulterers, right? Because Jesus makes it abundantly clear, especially in this whole Sermon on the Mount, that our faith is a heart condition, not a measure of what we do. Let me say that again. Our faith is a heart condition, not a measure of what we do, right? And Jesus says, it's really that simple, and, what, and these words are harsh, right? They come out harsh and convicting. But he's saying that's what's at stake here. It's not what you think you are, not the status that you've achieved. 
in your accomplishments of righteousness. It's where your heart finds itself going, right? Be aware of what is shaping your heart. So we'll be talking later this semester um, about pornography um, specifically because we have to, right? And we, I think most of us in this room can probably passively accept that pornography is probably not the best thing, right? Um, pornography is a, is a pernicious influence in this world, right? But what about all the other media that we constantly stare at, especially since we're just like this all the time now, constantly taking it in? What are those things for you that just constantly feeding your mind, constantly shaping in some small way who you are inside, even if you maintain kind of your righteous exterior? Are these things helping us with our relationship with Christ? Whatever these things are that are coming at you. I mean, it's not even just here, right? It's all over. Or are they constantly wearing it down and dulling it and distracting it? Is the stuff we're feeding our minds with every day helping us to be the real essence of what God has made us to be? I want you to sit with that question. Matthew 5 also says, blessed are the pure, and he begins with this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Is the stuff we're feeding our mind helping us to see God. And when I'm asking you guys this question, I'm asking myself as well. I've got a lot to do with these questions. It's like food. Back in uh, just a chapter before, in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says himself, man cannot live on bread alone, but every word from the mouth of God. And uh, Philippians 4a, Paul says it very emphatically. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And why? Why does he say this to the Philippians? Because he knows this is how people are shaped into what God is, right? It's feed yourself on these things. Seek these things out. Seek out the health food of your life and let yourself want that because it does amazing things for you. Man must live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What are we living on? And how is it sustaining us? These are all things that go into how we think about purity, right? So let's connect this. We're talking about relationships this semester. Let's connect this to our relationships. How are you pursuing someone or something? Are we getting to know someone because we want something from them? Or are we getting to know them because we truly care about who they are? In dating relationships, we have to operate on pure intentions. And this is why purity is so important. It's not just about sex, right? It's about the purity of, 
our intentions and our directions that we go in relationships. Jesus loved people and spent time with them for their sake, not for his. And this is our model, right? Loving people under false pretenses is not pursuing purity. It won't get you there. It won't take you there. David did what he did with Bathsheba, not for her sake, obviously, but for his. That's how the whole situation came about. He saw her and said in his mind, I want that for me. Right? He killed Uriah, not for Uriah's sake, but for his, right? That's what it came to. It's almost comical to say, but that's what the impurity of that direction in his heart took him to. And when he finally understood what he did, he cried out to God to create a pure heart in him and renew a spirit of rightness within him. Let's look at another part of Psalm 51. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. This is David saying, I am, this is me wanting to get outside of myself so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. I will, I will, I will renew the love that I have and I know that I have for you, right? Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Do not delight in, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, right? Here it is. Like, you don't, you're not looking at what I do. You see my heart and I'm realizing that and I'm understanding that. My sacrifice, O oh God, is what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Right. So let's, let's get a little more towards sex as we're talking about purity. Sorry, Sydney. 1 Corinthians 6. We kind of camped in this a, a few weeks ago, but I want to bring it back to us. This is Paul talking again. I have the right to do anything you say, but I say, not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of what? What? Christ himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he unite unite? <laughs> Sorry, he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee, flee from sexual immorality. 
All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So that's a lot of words to say what? You are made in a pure form by God. Treasure that. Protect that. Own that. Love that. Paul acknowledges that the argument is often made in his world. Everything is permissible. And this is something he no doubt heard from those who took even his own approach to the Mosaic law very liberally, right? But he rightly points out that not everything is beneficial. We can do whatever we want, but not everything is going to lead us to God. And if it doesn't, what is its value? Paul makes it clear that engaging in sexual immorality, and in this particular case, sleeping with prostitutes, but kind of insert all kinds of things in there, moves you away from your body being what God designed it to be, which is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, you are holy. You are holy. And I don't want you, in this case, I want you to hear that very personally. He's saying, you. Insert your name. Let's do that. I want you to say, I am holy. Let's do that. Let's do it like that. Let's do that all together. I am holy. Do you feel that way? Do you know that? Because that's what's true. And that's what Paul is saying. You're holy, not because you got there, because that's the way you were made. And why would you unite yourself with something that is not? Right. Remember your essence. So how do we pursue purity in our daily lives? And how do we assess the things in our lives that aren't honoring God and aren't bringing us closer to him? It's going to take a lot of difficult and painful and honest questions. Like, is this being Christ-like? Is this right for me? Is this growing my relationship with Christ? Is this honoring Christ with my body? Is this being all who Jesus intended me to be? And what is your desire for? To love God and to love others or to do and think things that just aren't what we're made to be? Okay, That's what it comes down to. Your essence is, it all comes back to this, right? To love God to love others, right? 
you seek that essence of yourself, you'll find what purity means for you. Now, I want to put a little asterisk on this. There's a little disclaimer in all of this. And it's something that I want, to, want us to always be clear about. <clears throat> if, you're, if you are one of the one in six women or one in 33 men who has been sexually assaulted, This will be true for you guys. Has been sexually assaulted or abused. You being sexually assaulted has no bearing on your ability to pursue purity and all the things Christ wants for you. Right? No perpetrator can ever take who you are in Christ away from you. Nobody. Nobody can do that for you and the, because the pursuit of purity is completely your decision, okay? We're actually going to dive into that a little more in depth next week. Um, now purity is about pursuing the person you were made to be. It's not a shame-based status, but a holiness-motivated journey that is deeply wrapped in loving God, and loving others. And that's why purity is not about what it isn't. It's about what it is.